Today we begin a new sermon series simply entitled One Another. The Greek word that's rendered one another is found in a hundred times in 94 verses in the New Testament. 47 of those verses speak to how we as a church ought to interact one with the other. There are times when the scripture tells us that we ought to love one another, encourage one another, serve one another, just to name a few. Today, I want us to begin our study focusing on that instruction that we ought to forgive one another. It is Paul who says in Ephesians chapter 4 that you ought to forgive one another as in Christ God forgave you. The problem, the difficulty, the issue is, is that all of our earthly relationships are comprised of sinful humanity. Therefore, it's inevitable that we will be hurt, disappointed, and let down. Not only will we be on the receiving end of that, but there are times that we are on the giving end of that. Yet the scripture tells us that we ought to forgive one another. It is John MacArthur who said, never are you more like God than when you forgive one another. He goes on to write that some of our relationships deteriorate not because of the violation, but simply because of the lack of forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't easy, is it? Forgiveness is downright hard. It is far easier to foster resentment than to issue forgiveness. It is far easier to nurse a grudge than to issue forgiveness. And sometimes, if we're really honest with ourselves, forgiveness of that towards that other person, it seems not only impossible, but it also seems undesirable. There are times that we don't forgive simply because we don't want to forgive the other person for the wrong they have done. And yet this morning, we begin this eight-part sermon series, and we find that as we relate one to the other, we must forgive each other. With that in mind, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 18. I want to read verses 21 to 35 in your hearing. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to God's most holy word. Matthew chapter 18, allow me to begin at verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. 
May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience to his perfect word. You may be seated. It is the Apostle Peter who asked the question, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? This question does not come to Jesus out of left field. In fact, it's an accurate response from the context of the previous teaching. Jesus had already been talking about this issue of forgiveness. He said in the previous passage, if your brother sins against you, then go show him his fault. If he repents, you've won back your brother. If he fails to repent, then take two or three witnesses with you to confirm the testimony. And if he repents, well. But if he doesn't, then take him before the church. Not for retaliation, but take him before the church in the hopes of reconciliation. That the church may be able to point out his sin uh, to him. And if he responds in repentance, then awesome. But if he doesn't, then treat him like an outsider, like a tax collector like a pagan for that which is bound on earth will be bound in heaven that which is loosed on earth will be loosed on heaven if two or three people come together under this issue of forgiveness then there the Lord will be with them it is immediately following this teaching that Peter comes to Jesus not only with a question but also with an answer in his hip pocket Lord how many times shall I forgive my brother who sinned against me up to seven times see Peter understood that the rabbinical teaching told uh, Jews that they had to forgive a fellow Jew up to three times Peter also understood that Jesus is a teacher of compassion so he thought to himself Jesus is not going to be satisfied with only forgiving your brother three times I will more than double that so he said up to seven times I'm sure that Peter expected an attaboy from the master but Jesus shocked the disciples when he said not seven times, but 77 times. Some of your translations render that not seven times, but 70 times seven. So regardless of whether the proper understanding is 77 or 490, the implication's pretty clear that Jesus is telling Peter and anybody who will listen, you've got to forgive far more than you ever thought possible. You've got to forgive an astronomical amount. You've got to forgive more than you ever conceived in your mind. I know what the teachers tell you. They say up to three. Peter, you said up to seven. I tell you, it's, it's far greater than that. Now, I don't think that Jesus wants you to take your iPhone or your tablet and somehow tally all the grievances that anybody does against you. And once you get to that magical number of 78 or 491, then all bets are off and you don't have to forgive anybody. No, I don't think that Jesus would like our legal ledgers. I don't think that Jesus would like us in a pharisaical way to keep score against the person who has wronged us. His point is, you've got to forgive more than you're even comfortable forgiving. You've got to forgive more than you ever thought possible, ever thought imaginable, and you may have to forgive the same person over and over and over and over again. Jesus uses that number seven. He piggybacks off of that. That number seven is the number of completion. I think that Jesus is saying, you need to forgive your brother until everything is complete. A simple reading of the New Testament tells us that everything won't be complete until Jesus comes back. 
So what he is teaching his disciples is you must forgive until I come and get you. You must forgive until Jesus peels back the eastern sky. You've got to forgive until Jesus returns. Now to prove his point and to illustrate his rationale, Jesus tells a story. In the story, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. The first servant that stood before the king was a man who owed his king 10,000 talents. In those days, a talent was nothing about a giftedness or a physical ability, but a talent was the highest form of currency in the first century. It's hard to estimate the value of a talent, but most have suspected that one talent was equivalent to 60 denarii. A denarius is an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. So if one talent is equivalent to 60 days of work, then 10,000 talents is equivalent to 600,000 days of work. In other words, this man had an indebtedness that was equivalent to 1,643 years of wages. Let that sink in. This man owed his king a debt of 1,643 years of annual wages. How does a person get in that much debt? Now, we're Americans. We know how to get into debt. We excel in getting into debt. We get into debt well over our eyeballs, but I don't know anybody listening to my voice who has an indebtedness that's equal to 1,643 years of your annual wages. This is astronomical. How does he get in this much debt? This must imply gross financial mismanagement and probably insinuates some type of criminal activity. I mean, this man is a thief. He is a robber. He has stolen from his king. He's mismanaged everything that the king has given to him. He has an indebtedness he will never be able to pay back. The king does the only thing the king can do. He issues this decree that this man and his wife and all of his children must be sold into slavery. And everything this man owns must be sold in an effort to recoup some of the indebtedness. The king is not being rude. He's not being angry. He's not mistreating the servant. He's doing the only thing he possibly can do. He knows that even with the selling of this man and his wife and his children and all of his stuff, there's no way he can recoup all that he has lost, all the indebtedness that this man owes him. When the servant hears the decree, he falls on his knees and falls on the mercy of the king. Be patient with me, he pleads, and I will pay back everything. Both this man and the master, they both know there is no way this man can ever pay back his debt. But as a sign of benevolence, as a stroke of genius grace, the king in one moment not only spares the life of this man and the lives of all of his family and not only does the king spare all of his possessions, but in one moment the king says your debt 
is canceled. Now, if you were that man, how would you respond? You'd do more than that. I mean, if you were that man, and in one moment you stood before your king knowing you're guilty as charged, you owe him 1,643 years of wages, and in one moment he not only uh, allows you to live, allows you to keep your family, allows you to possess all your stuff, but he cancels your debt. To say that you'd be overjoyed, to say that you'd be thrilled, to say that you'd be walking on cloud nine, just begins to describe your emotional demeanor. I mean, friends, how would you respond if you were that person? Okay, you might say that, you may say more, but you kind of get the idea. I mean, this man, he he should have lost everything. And the king said, not only can you keep everything and the air in your lungs, but you no longer have a debt that you owe me. You are completely set free. This man, when he left the presence of his king, he must have just been elated, thinking to himself, I cannot believe this, but I did the jackpot. I mean, my king is awesome. My king is so good. But no sooner had this man left the palace steps that something appalling took place. He bumped into a fellow servant. This fellow servant owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii is equivalent to a hundred days of wages. It's approximately three months of debt. Now that's a significant debt. It's not an insurmountable debt. A person can actually pay back three months of wages over a significant amount of time. And when you stop and consider a hundred days versus 600,000 days seems quite trivial, doesn't it? When you compare three months of debt compared to 1,643 years of debt, it seems minimal, trivial. Yet this servant grabbed his fellow servant by the shirt collar. Pay back what you owe me. He said with a passion plea. And the other servant looked to his fellow servant and said, be patient with me. I'll pay back everything. Ironically, the second servant said to the first servant the same thing the first servant had said to his king. Be patient with me. I'll pay back what you owe me. I'll pay back what you deserve. And instead of letting this man go, he orders for this man to be thrown into debtor's prison until he could pay back the 100 denarii. Now, full transparency, the first servant had every right to throw his fellow servant into debtor's prison. He had the right to do it, but in the context of the story, something just doesn't feel right about that, does it? I mean, this man had just been in the presence of his king. He had 10,000 talents worth of debt, equivalent to 600,000 days. That debt had been canceled in one fell swoop. He makes his way off the palace porch. He bumps into a fellow servant, and, and he doesn't administer the same level 
of mercy that he had just received. The truthfulness of this story leaps off the pages of black and white, doesn't it? It confronts us every day in living color. I dare say that there are very few of us who honestly identify with the servant who had the enormous debt to the king. We think to ourselves, I mean, I know that I'm a sinner, but I don't know if, if I'm a really, really bad sinner. You think to yourself, you know, I, I got saved when I was seven. I didn't have very many skeletons in my seven-year-old closet. Even to this day, you think to yourself, I don't have a whole lot of skeletons in my closet. I'm not nearly as bad as some other people that I could itemize and I could even point out to you, Pastor. I'm not nearly as bad as other people. I don't really think I'm all that bad. I try to treat people well. I try to treat them with respect. I try not to be offensive. I mean, there are times when I may lose my cool. There are times when I may become arrogant. There are times when I might be selfish, but I'm not perfect and nobody else is, but I'm not nearly as bad as a bunch of other people on planet on earth right now. So I know that, I know that I'm a sinner, but I don't know if I'm a, a 10,000 talent kind of sinner. I don't know that I necessarily owe God like a gazillion dollars for all the bad stuff that I've done, which by the way, I don't know how much a gazillion dollars is, but it's a whole lot, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think that I'm really a 10,000 talent indebted kind of sinner. I was saved when I was young. I'm a pretty good person. I go to church as much as anybody else, especially in the days of COVID. I've got to get some credit for that. And yet, I believe from the bottom of my heart that in this story, Jesus wants all of us to properly identify as the servant who had the enormous debt. Because you, like me, we are all sinners. And our sin, regardless of how we gauge it, is an attack against the holiness of God. All of our arrogant thoughts, all of our dirty deeds, all of our deception that we think nobody else knows about, it's a secret that we keep hidden from the watching world. Everything that, that, we, that we think um, may be kind of wrong, it, it's an attack against the very holiness of God. And God has every right to settle accounts with all of us. And if he settled accounts with all of us, we would all be guilty as charged and we have a sin debt that we cannot pay. There is no way we can do enough good to break even with God. We all have an enormous sin debt. And if God, the king of the universe, demanded to settle accounts with us, even if he stripped us of the air we breathe, and the wealth we treasure, and the health we possess, and the family that we love, and all the stuff that we cling to, even if he stripped us of all of that, there is no way that we could break even with the Lord. There is no way that we could um, uh, earn uh, our uh, sin debt to be paid in full. We have a debt we cannot pay. 
Because all of us are sinners in the presence of a holy God. And in steps Jesus. And Jesus, who is the God-man, fully God and fully human, stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth on a rescue mission for you. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Jesus came so that your sin debt might be paid. Jesus lived a perfect life. He stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem about the age of 33 with a crossbeam strapped to his back. He was beaten beyond all human recognition. He barely looked human, let alone alive. As he made his way through the city streets, he went up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. And there the Roman soldiers stretched him wide. They hoisted him into the air. And for a few hours in the third decade of the first century, Jesus became our indebtedness. Jesus took on our sin. And he was there and drank every last drop of God's holy hostility he paid the sin debt he did not owe because we have a sin debt that we cannot pay he has so much in charge of this that Jesus declared it is finished it is paid in full to telestai he bowed his head he gave up his ghost they took his dead body off the cross placed him into a borrowed grave rolled a massive stone in front of it he stayed there for the rest of Friday all day Saturday even early into the hours of Sunday but early on Sunday morning the dead body began to breathe again early on Sunday Sunday morning, God the Father raised God the Son by the power of God the Spirit. Early on Sunday morning, Jesus burst forth victorious over your sin, your hell, your grave, and, and your sickness. Jesus came forward out of the tomb, and he is victorious over all of our sin. Not only did he pay our sin debt, but he gave us his innocence. Not only is our sin debt paid for, but we are righteous in the sight of God, both now and forevermore. It's not only that your debt has been paid, but that his righteous stuff now is your righteous stuff. That his innocence is now your innocence, both now and forevermore. The king who is so mighty and massive in his mercy, not only, not only canceled your debt, but he gave you freedom and innocence in Christ. Oh, we praise the Lord. We rejoice over what God has done in Christ for us. And once we have some moments in the presence of the King where we worship Him and exalt His holy name, then we leave the sanctuary going out the side door because the last thing you want is to bump in to that moron who goes to church here who said something two years ago that really, really hurt you. And you remember what he said. And yet you've never really ever forgotten it. And, and the last thing you want to do after you stand in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you do not want to have to bump into that moron. And then you get into your car and you go to a restaurant, and you and your family just want a nice meal. But the service of the waiter and waitress is so slow. 
Don't they know you have more to do than to sit in their restaurant all afternoon? I mean, surely, can't they fill your ice water before it gets to the very bottom? Is that too much to ask to give me a little bit more sweet tea? And then you go to Walmart. Because you just need a couple of things. It's in, it's out, it's fast. And you go to Walmart and clearly that imbecile in the other car knew that parking spot belonged to you. That's what the blinker's for. You turn the blinker on to tell him, I'm going in there, but he cut right in front of you and you are fuming. And all the while that your spouse is in Walmart, you're fuming because that guy got your spot. And then you see the ticket from Walmart and you begin to blast your spouse for how much was spent at Walmart. And then you go home. And your wife looks and says, is it too much, idiot, for you to pick up your dirty laundry and put in the hamper? Watch me, she said, watch me. All you have to do is pick up the clothes, step one, step two, step three. Lift up the hamper and put it in. Is it too much to ask? My mama and daddy were right. You are an idiot. And then we get on the phone with our ex-wife. And you're just mad. And you got every right to be mad. I mean, don't you remember what she did with your former best friend of seven years ago? And oh boy, you are just giving it to her left and right. And all the while that you're trying to blast her, your children are arguing and bickering in the background. And you're talking to her and you're trying to deal with them as well. Heaven knows where they get it. I don't know where they get this idea that they can just argue and bicker. And so you've got to put them in their place and then you've got to go to work. And your boss is a moron. No two ways about it. It's not that he's a boss who sticks up for the employees. He's a boss who sticks it to the employees. And if you were boss for one day, you would straighten everything out in the company. And then there's that coworker. She doesn't know what she's doing. You could have told the supervisor six months ago when the supervisor gave her the promotion instead of you. When she got the promotion, you could have said to the supervisor, she doesn't know what she's doing. She can't even lead herself out of a brown paper bag. She doesn't know anything that she's doing. Here we are six months later and she still doesn't know how to do the job. And then after work, you go to the ball field and you're there sitting in the stands. You're trying to mind your own business. You're just trying to enjoy your daughter's softball game. And it's clear, it's clear that the coach doesn't know what he's doing. You've got all kinds of names that I can't repeat that you're calling that coach in your mind because you think to yourself, listen, my daughter is far better at softball than the coach's daughter. And everybody knows the only reason that she's playing second base is because she is the coach's daughter. And you say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. And you tell your spouse, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind after the game's over. She says, honey, don't do that. Don't do it. You really shouldn't do it. I know. I know. I'm blessed. I know. I shouldn't do it, but I'm going to. So you go and you follow him. You track him down and you give him a piece of your mind. And you really feel a lot better after you do it. And then you get into your car and you play the music. Mercy is mine. Oh, praise the Lord. I'm saved. I am sanctified. I am holy. I'm redeemed. Jesus came and he rescued me from all I say, praise the Lord, I'm a Christian. This story jumps off the pages of black and white 
and confronts us in living color every day where we live. The point of the story is simply this. Jesus is saying, if you have been showered with forgiveness from God, you must show forgiveness to others. Pastor, I understand what you're saying. I understand the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18. But pastor, who do you think you are? You don't know the depth of betrayal that I feel. You don't know the severity of the scars that I carry. You don't know how the pain and mistreatment of what somebody else did to me has paralyzed my life for years. You have no right, pastor, to stand up there and tell me this. You don't know what I've gone through. And friend, you're right. I don't know. But the one who does know everything that you've been through tells you to forgive. The one who does know everything gives you this story and tells you to forgive. If you have been showered by forgiveness, then you must show forgiveness to others. Forgiveness is learning how to set the prisoner free, only to discover that you were the prisoner. Listen, friend, if you don't forgive somebody, it doesn't hurt them, it hurts you. If you don't forgive somebody for the wrong that they've done and nobody debates the evil that has been done to you, but if you don't forgive them, that does not imprison that person. It imprisons you. Forgiveness is learning how to set the prisoner free only to discover that you were the prisoner. What this servant did to his fellow servant got back to the king. Newsflash, everything always gets back to the king. The king called the first servant in, had him stand in front of him one more time. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled your debt because you asked me to. I was merciful to you because you pleaded for that mercy. And now you took my mercy and you would not apply it to a fellow servant? Scripture says in anger, the king said to his guards, take this servant and torture him in prison until he pays back his debt. In other words, this is a life sentence because there's no way this man can pay back 10,000 talents, 600,000 
days of labor, 1,643 years of wages. And then Jesus wraps up the story with this last statement. This is how my Father in heaven will treat any of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. You can take that word brother and insert anybody's name. It may not be your brother, it may be your husband, it may be your wife. It could be your son, it could be your daughter. It could be a coworker, it could be a classmate, it could be a teammate, it could be a boss, could be a supervisor, could be a church member. This is how my Father in heaven will treat any of you. If you don't forgive your brother from your heart. But Lord, how many times do I have to forgive until I come back to get you? But Lord, it's the same person in my life who wrongs me time and time again. And Jesus says, forgive them, for that's what I've done for you. This forgiveness is so paramount in the heart of Jesus that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if a man forgives his brother, he will be forgiven by God. If a man does not forgive his brother, he will not be forgiven by God. At Calvary's cross, it is Jesus who says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Whenever I hear those words of Christ, I always am astounded because Jesus asked the Father to forgive them before they even asked for forgiveness. I've met more than one Christian who'll tell me, Pastor, I have no problem with forgiveness so long as that person who's wronged me asks for it. To which I say, what about the person who has wronged you and they don't ask for it? And we go right back to Calvary. Because Jesus in that moment was thinking of you and thinking of me. And he said on our behalf, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Friend, I wonder this morning, are you in need of God's forgiveness? Maybe you're here and for the first time ever, you have understood that you are the servant with an enormous sin debt that you cannot pay back unto the Lord, that there's no amount of good deeds that can help you break even with God, that there's no ledger that somehow you can do more good than bad that will tip the scales in your favor. No, you have a sin debt that you cannot pay. And today for the first time, you've heard the Lord, the righteous king, say to you, I have canceled your debt. I've declared innocence over your life. You have the righteousness of Jesus as belonging to you, and it's all by faith. And maybe today, friend, you need to receive God's forgiveness for the first time ever. And today can be the day of your salvation, for, for salvation is drawing near. But maybe you're here and you've already settled accounts with the king. You already know that you have bowed on your face before the Lord and you have pleaded for his mercy and he has given you his kindness. He has forgiven you in Jesus Christ. But this morning, there's somebody that keeps coming against the screen of your mind that the Holy Spirit's reminding you, you need to forgive this person. You need to forgive this person. You need to forgive this person. 
And there's everything inside of you that says, yes, Lord, but, yes, Lord, but do you know what they've done unto me? Do you know the severity of the pain? Do you know the depth of betrayal? And Jesus shows you his nail-scarred hands, and he says, I do. I do know the depth of your betrayal, and I do know the severity of these scars because of your sin. Friend, if you have been showered by the forgiveness of God, then you must show that forgiveness to others. Today is the beginning of an eight-part sermon series. I thought we'd start with the easiest one. Forgive one another. John MacArthur is exactly right. Never are you more like God than when you forgive. If you're here today in need of God's forgiveness, it is here free of charge. Come and receive it by faith. If you're here today in need of forgiveness from somebody else or forgiveness that you need to give to somebody else, come here to the altar. Kneel and pray. Ask for God's strength and power. And then leave this sanctuary and seek out that brother and seek out that sister and say, because of God's forgiveness to me, I willfully forgive you. Never are you more like God than when you forgive. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Father, we pray that for someone here in need of your forgiveness to be showered upon them, let it happen today. If there's somebody here who needs to show forgiveness to somebody else who has wronged them, let that begin today. And Father, I pray that you will bring to our mind all the scenarios and situations, the people and the places. Remind us of your goodness and your grace. Help us to respond in obedience. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and all God's people said, amen.